This is the American Alpine Club's Legacy Series, a tribute to the visionary climbers who made the sport what it is today, and a commitment to securing their legacies. On this episode, we're hearing from another climbing legend, Tom Frost, about his iconic exploits in Yosemite and beyond. I'm your host, Jim Aikman. Thanks for joining. Okay, you guys, let's see the, what you've got. Do I need to identify myself or anything? Or? No. Well, I think everybody knows who you are. Forget about that. Okay. You know, people ask me how I get started climbing. It's very simple. I fell in with a bad crowd. <laughs> and we started up for the nose with 10 days supply of water at uh, about one quart per man day. That's back when men were men, you know? <laughs> anyway, it was great. I never loved anything so much in my whole life as climbing the nose. I was home. Tom Frost was an American climber most known for his time on the big walls of Yosemite Valley, with many historic first ascents in the area. Born on June 30th, 1936, Tom was a stalwart member of the golden age of American climbing in the 1950s and 60s. As a Yosemite pioneer, Tom climbed with all the heavy hitters of the West Coast scene. Royal Robbins, Yvonne Chouinard, Chuck Pratt, Steve Roper, T.M. Herbert, just to name a few. He was also a world-class alpinist, with notable climbs from Alaska to the Himalayas. As a photographer, he left a visual record of key climbers and routes from his diverse experiences in the vertical world producing authentic, emotional imagery that defined a generation. He helped to cement the ethics of climbing that would eventually open the door to the clean climbing revolution, and many of the mores that guide climbing culture to this day. He designed and engineered some of the most important climbing tools of his time that most of us take for granted now, and made the sport available to more and more people around the world. A devout Mormon, Tom cared deeply about his fellow humans and possessed an intimately spiritual connection to the natural world. Tom passed away in 2018. For those and many other reasons, Tom is the focus of today's Legacy Series episode, featuring an interview conducted by Legacy co-founder Jim McCarthy, along with Doug Robinson, both of whom you'll hear chuckling in the background from time to time. Let's get into it. I grew up in Orange County, down in Southern California. I went to school at Stanford, and I went looking around, and there was the Stanford Alpine Club, and I says, that's me, because I'd always been interested in that. And I said, is this climbing the real deal? He says, oh yeah, it's the real deal, all right. And I said, oh, cool, I'll, get, I'll, I'll take that up when I come back my senior year, which I did. Mm -hmm. And there was John Harlan, and uh, he took me under his wing, and then Henry did. So that's how I got started in climbing. That would be John Harlan and Henry Kendall, for anyone keeping track. Before Tom fully committed to climbing, he got into sailing, learning the specific discipline of gear management and rope work, and how to manage complex systems, which proved to be a valuable crossover that got him dialed for the big walls. So that rope management and hardware management and gear placement, that stuff was very second nature for me. 
That enabled me to fit into big wall climbing. The big wall is a lot about rope management. You make too many screw-ups there and you're screwed. <laughs> Tom began climbing on the rocks around the Bay Area, not far from the Stanford campus. There's some sandstone outcrops on the peninsula, and we would go out to those and top rope them. Then we uh, took a weekend trip to Yosemite. I'll tell you, that was unbelievable. Well, you know what it's like going there. It's a horrifying experience. <laughs> we were spared the view from the meadow driving in. Driving into Camp 4, you know, it's pitch black, you know. I had this old lousy K-Pak insulated sleeping bag freezing my butt off. Uh, waking up in the morning in Camp 4, looking up, and I said, what's that? Oh, that's just Sentinel Rock. And I said, wow, ain't never seen anything so beautiful. Between his sailing background and an early aptitude for the style of movement, Tom was clearly predisposed to the climbing life and naturally gifted. All you realize is that, boy, I really enjoy doing this. You know, it was just like sailing. After Stanford, Tom headed south, back to his roots in Southern California, where he was still within easy striking distance of Yosemite Valley and the much closer area of Takeets. I was able to get a job at North American Aviation. And then I was doing client, I, was, I had finally found the Southern California group through the Sierra Club and then the, the rock climbing section and, and then finally went out to Takeets for one of their weekends and got started, met those guys. Takeets proved to be a worthy training ground for the Sierra Granite of Yosemite and an important meeting place for ambitious climbers of the time. But it would never compare to the Big Stone. I'd go up to Yosemite with these guys on, on the weekend. I'm saying, I'm looking around, I'm saying, gotta do photography. You know, this place is unreal. This is way off the scale. Tom is perhaps as well known as a climber as he is a photographer, capturing some of the most iconic moments and characters of the golden age, especially in Yosemite, in the same vein as folks like Glenn Denny and Galen Rowell. And so Dolt came and he said, Tom? That's Bill Fuhrer, or Dolt, as they called him in the valley. He says, you'll want to take this, and he hauls out his Leica camera. He says, you want to take this up with you. And never were truer words spoken than that. And then Tom met his most transformational climbing partner, a man who needs no introduction to this audience, at least. The godfather of the Yosemite Golden Age and the innovator of a generational style of climbing ethics, much of which remain ingrained to this day. I'm going to Takich and, and then these guys, you know, fairly hardcore guys, you know, Shania, Rick, Herbert, you know, they're not totally wimps. You know, every so often they'd mention the word royal. I didn't know what that meant, because I hadn't studied the history. I'm new, you know, I'm new on the block. And I says, this is really weird. They, they, they repeat this name with undue uh, respect. It's not like them. And so then one day they said, uh, one weekend they said, hey, royal's coming in next weekend. And I said, wow. And uh, that's when royal was in the army, stationed in Texas. And every once in a while, they'd catch a flight, a military flight, out to L.A., grab his mom's car, 
come out to wherever the guys were climbing and spend the weekend with them and then hitchhike back to Texas. A couple of weeks before that, we're up to a place called Mount Pacifico. And I says, oh, what's that? And they said, oh, that's the Robins Eliminate. Beautiful little, really super thin crack up a slightly overhanging wall. So I looked at that and I said, wow, that is the coolest little climb I've ever seen. And so I focused for two weeks and I went home and I traversed around the side of our house and on the windowsills and stuff. And you know, I started eating a little bit less and all I thought about was this climb, right? Anyway, when we got there, Roy was sitting on this stack of rocks right across from this little climb with a whole bunch of girls. <laughs> I said, oh, great. And I got on this climb and I climbed it. And I walked back and Royal says, nice going. And then Royal made Tom an offer he just couldn't refuse. The crown jewel of Yosemite climbing. The most iconic line in the most iconic valley in the world. The nose of El Capitan. He had been planning to do second ascent of Harding's nose route. And he asked me if I'd like to, to join them. I said, me, not knowing any different, said yes. My assumption was he had asked all these other guys and, and they were smart enough to say no. <laughs> and I didn't find out until, you know, 50 years later that he just liked my unique spirit, whatever that was. Went to Yosemite in the spring of 1960 to do the nose. And he said, we're not ready. We climbed the uh, Stexolithan Sentinel, made the second ascent of uh, uh, Half Dome, the, the standard route on Half Dome. Second ascents on Sentinel and Half Dome weren't exactly consolation prizes. In fact, they were extremely historic ascents in their own right. We said, hey, you know, let's go for the top on the second day, because it took them five days, you know. And so I was leading the zigzags and just putting every ounce of energy, not, not conserving anything, you know, I was exhausted. We got up to zigzags at the end of the day, and had to bivouac on, thank God, ledge. The worst place in the world. I was lucky, yeah, I was lucky. I, got, I was the last one to get there, and I got the tail end of the ledge, which is the widest part. And those poor guys, you know, had to be sitting on this ledge that was this wide, dead vertical on this side and this side with pitons in the crack to hold them in that kept popping out. <laughs> you know, you know how, how a big slab does through the night. <laughs> and I slept like a dog. But anyway, so that was, that was great. And then we came back in the uh, fall and we, uh, we climbed the nose. Joe Fitchin was in high school with Royal. They were high school buddies and climbing buddies. So Joe was the first one to be invited to go on the climb. Next was Pratt. That's Chuck Pratt. Who was in the Bay Area, but Royal was well aware of him. And I was the fourth member. I had okay big wall skills. I was at home on the big walls. I loved bivouacking. I loved being on those ledges and watching the stars go across the sky, you know, all night, and, you know, having to get up and face the rocks the next day, and good companions. And we started up for the nose. Mm -hmm. 
after about five days, we were, you know, we were way up the climb. We realized we could, we could increase our water ration to a quart and a half per man day, luxury accommodation. That was living then. <laughs> and we climbed in seven days, and you guys know that there's nothing in the world like stepping off the top of El Cap on the kind of flatter ground the first time. It's like stepping into heaven. It was such a big experience for me being up there in that whole scene that my feet didn't touch the ground for two years. That was it, you know. Tom and Royal didn't stop with the nose. Next, they spotted what is probably the second most obvious line up El Cap on an even steeper section, the Salafé Wall. So then, Royal goes, and, and we look and we say, and I say, hey, Royal, look at that overhang up there. There's a crack above it, you know, the head wall. I said, wow, look at that. Royal goes, talks to Chuck in Camp 4, and Chuck says, yeah, I've been looking at that line for a while. <laughs> and uh, so we agreed to, you know, start up immediately. That was sort of the climbing experience of a lifetime, you know, being up there on the solitary wall with those two guys. You know, back then you could look out over the San Joaquin Valley and you could see kind of the lights of, of San Jose, you know, and stuff. You know, the air was kind of clear and the world was out there, way out there, you know. And we were here and the world out there didn't know we were here. We're about the only ones in the valley that are climbers, you know, and we're up here. Look at this place and we feel what it feels like, this place. It took me 50 years to figure out why those experiences impacted me so much. It was actually because of that intimate partnering with Mother Nature that affected me so much, which was the same thing it had been with the sailing. You know, I felt at home out there in the water with nothing but nature. And to see how, you know, if you, if you give it your best, and try to go about it in the best way you can. You know, doing no harm. You know, Royal's mantra, you know, it's not getting to the summit, but how you do it that counts. You know, which was the whole golden age message until a guy came along and introduced the clean climbing message, which was not bad. <laughs> that really impacted me so much that it took me 50 years to interpret it. I was with the best climbers on the planet, but that wasn't it. You know, I was with the best partner on the planet. You know, the planet itself and Earth Spirit, and looking back on everything the way it was, it transpired that Earth Spirit was just as keen about our success as we were, and that the Earth was a real partner in the venture and provided everything that we needed to succeed. Anyway. I'll stop going on about that stuff. Talking about Tom Frost's climbing and the prolific partners he had in the Yosemite Valley is a sensible starting point in the discussion of his career. But beyond the big wall climbing and physical accomplishments, 
Tom left an LCAP-sized mark on the gear that made the Golden Age possible, innovating new and better tools to facilitate the upward mobility of American climbers. Of course, he wasn't alone, and it was thanks to the entrepreneurial spirit of another name which needs no introduction, and the subject of a previous episode in the Legacy podcast series, Yvonne Chouinard. That was a partnership that really worked because uh, he, he, was, he was, as you know, he's an idea man. And I had engineering skills which enabled me to turn his idea into a, a workable product and to have the engineering drawing so that it could be, to make the tooling so it could be manufactured. Uh, which is why he brought me on board because he was hand making everything and it was getting to be too popular. My success with Yvonne, you know, we really took off, you know, because he, he knew how to do business and I knew how to, make, to design product. Perfect match. And, and Yvonne had the right balance between function and business. You know, Yvonne is the one that taught me how to do small business. I'm not sure if I taught him anything at all, but... Uh, <laughs> Tom's collaboration with Chenard gave us some of the most important tools that helped bring climbing into alignment with Royal Robbins' ethics and paved the way for the clean climbing era. The first thing I designed was a standard angle piton. After that, I designed uh, the lost arrow piton, which really were the most important thing we ever did. That was the staple piton. It was beautifully functional, a nice little breakthrough. I really enjoyed those days, especially the early days at Chenard. They were the best. The most fun job I ever had. Design pitons and we'd go up to Yosemite and test them out. Basically our, <coughs> our quest was to try to design hardware that fit the Yosemite cracks. It was implementation of the whole Camp 4 philosophy of uh, how you do it is what counts. I was having so much fun making pitons and stuff, and we were working together great that, you know, I, w I was fine with everything until, until it wasn't, and then it's time to leave. So uh, that's the end of the, uh, the story. And I'm just out here smiling. He's rich and I'm happy, so that's good enough. And if I play my cards right, I'll get a nice jacket, free jacket from Patagonia. <laughs> Through the back door, the main people don't know about it. Cutting on the floor. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> Back in Yosemite, after Tom's climbs on Sentinel, Half Dome, The Nose, and the Salafay Wall, Tom's final contribution to the guidebooks was the first ascent of the North America Wall in 1964. After that, his life took a left turn, away from the sweeping walls of Yosemite, where he would never complete another historic climb, and into the realm of faith, becoming a devout Mormon and committing himself to a more spiritual path. When we got through with the North America Wall in 1964, you know, that was another great experience. And I just soaked it in. I stayed in the valley for, you know, everybody left. Royal left, everybody left. I was the only climber in Camp 4 for a, 
a week after everybody left. Finally, I said, okay, I gotta face the music. Packed all my stuff up, started walking, hitchhiked all the way to the far end of the tunnel and said, I'm not walking any farther. I said, I'm gonna hitchhike here or die. <laughs> Finally caught rides back home. But I had known that when I got home from, from that trip that I, that I was gonna investigate the church because Doreen kept saying no. Doreen was Tom's soon-to-be wife, a member of the Mormon church. No, no, you're no good. No, that's not going to work. And so I said, this gal is really tough. You know, she is tough. I know that when I go back, I'm going to have to investigate the church. So I was savoring the valley as long as I could. I knew that was my last big wall climb ever. Because once when you go back into society, whatever that is, that stuff is way too committing to uh, ever do again. Tom could have made a life, even a career, out of exploiting the status he'd achieved as a Yosemite icon. Instead, setting up a quiet life in the small town of Oakdale, California, not far, in fact, from Yosemite, with his wife Doreen. That was until a special invitation came over his transom, an invite from one of the most successful expedition leaders of his time, Chris Bonington. It was another offer he simply couldn't pass up. The next thing that happened was the British, you know, the, the trouble causes of the planet. Uh, Bonington starts writing me these letters, inviting me to go to Annapurna, 1970. So Annapurna South Face Expedition. Annapurna is an 8,000 meter peak in Nepal, one of the highest mountains in the world and one that had yet to be climbed by an American team. It is also one of the most deadly mountains, with a 32% fatality rate and considerable avalanche hazard. Their objective was the unclimbed 11,000-foot south face. They would be the first to attempt the route, and more importantly, one of the first expeditions to take a deliberately difficult route up an 8,000-meter peak. Bonington chose Tom for his considerable big wall experience, as well as his secret Himalayan experience with the CIA installing a nuclear-powered listening device for monitoring Chinese missiles. But uh, much of that remains classified and outside the scope of this podcast. I didn't want any part of it. I was trying to be a good Mormon and learn how to do church stuff. That was, that was hard. Talk about a hard job. <laughs> and then that other trouble causer, Dougal Hassan, calls up on the phone. He says, I'm in Yosemite. Come up here, I want to show you something. I says, oh, okay, Yosemite I'm willing to do. <laughs> and he had the little three by five photograph, you know, of the south face of Annapurna. The only picture they had of the whole thing. And so I changed my mind and said, okay. I go to Annapurna. I get immersed in this gang of ragamuffin ruff ruffians, I mean, <laughs> real ruffians. You know, I'm very slow to pick, you know, to get the drift of things. But to me, it, it was another fun climb, you know. Hey, we're here to have fun. It's just another big wall, a little snow and altitude. Looks great. It took me three quarters of the way through, maybe longer, to realize that these were professional climbers that were there for one purpose only, to further their careers and to get the TV time 
and to get the successful ascent of the mountain. That was a revelation to me. You know, that was before, you know, the sponsorship was big over here. And we had the ITN crew there, you know, and every time we'd come down off the mountain, they'd interview us, you know, and they'd, uh, they were sending back every week, they were sending back TV coverage, you know, the, the climb was live, way back before satellite TV and all that stuff. It was something. And so, well, I'm up there with these professional climbers. I'm saying, hey guys, loosen up, you know, this is, this is great. <laughs> and, uh, and so that we're getting, it's getting a little dicey, right? We're getting a little late into the trip. We got stuck on the ice ridge, which took forever to climb. Cornices, hard places, you know, overhanging Jumars, whacking away at it, what they can, you know, and, and uh, the time is running out. The, the supplies are running out and the time is running out. We have very little food left. The monsoon is headed our way. Bonington is not gonna let the expedition go. And so he, he hatches his plan. The trip became plagued by expedition politics. After a series of volleys between competing teams and a rotation of high points, Tom was ultimately at the front of the pack with a solo opportunity to reach the summit. His partner, Mick Burke, had fallen ill and stayed back in the tent, and Tom suddenly found himself alone with the mountain. And I'm saying, this is so cool, you know, with crisp, cold air, you know, sunlight until about three o'clock in the afternoon anyway. Nice, uh, you know, metamorphosed granite rock views. You can't read the views. I'm saying, this is great. You know, I'm saying, we're probably the highest guys in the world right now. Reaching 25,000 feet, just a few snow pitches below the summit, the weather changed and Tom decided to turn around without nabbing the grand prize. But for him, like his cohort from Yosemite Valley, this expedition and all others wasn't about the destination. It was about the journey. I'm saying, oh boy, this is, this is, a, this is a sobering moment of reality. And so I'm sitting around taking a few pictures and I can't hardly even take pictures, it's so cold. Looking around and resting and looking around and resting and <laughs> looking up. And I realize I can see the summit and it's all a snow slog to the summit. It's about 45 degrees maybe, I don't know. It's, it's, it's easy, if it was ankle deep, it would have been easy. I would have gone for it, but it was, it was deep snow. And I knew from experience that I don't have the, uh, the power and the uh, endurance to uh, do that kind of stuff. So uh, I finally just decided, okay, enjoy myself here for a while. This is a great place. This is pretty cool. This is higher than most. <laughs> I'm saying, and so I go down and, and I don't actually have a second thought about it, to be honest with you. After forging much of the hardest climbing on the mountain with his partner Mick, Tom left Nepal without the notch in his belt. Had he reached the top, he would have been recognized as the preeminent alpine climber in America at the time, and the climb would remain a celebrated chapter in American lore. Instead, after Tom's attempt, other members of the crew, not Americans, jumped ahead and made a successful climb on May 27, 1970. 
It would be eight more years before another team of Americans, this time all women, led by Arlene Bloom, would reach the top of Annapurna, not by the South Face, as chronicled in the legacy series film Annapurna 78. And for me, schooled by Robbins and the gang in Camp 4, it's not getting to the summit, but how you do it that counts. And I had done okay on Annapurna Expedition. I had been an okay team member. And the truth of it is, the experience for me was being up there with Mother Nature on planet Earth. Intimate relationship with Earth. I was full to the brim. I was happy boy. Tom's climbing didn't end after Annapurna. In fact, it was merely the beginning of his impressive alpine climbing career. Expeditions to the Ruth Gorge of Alaska, Ama de Blom in the Himalayas in 1979, a new route on Cantega with Jeff Lowe in 1986, and through it all, his connection to Mother Earth and his climbing partners never wavered. He was a true blue icon of American climbing, the likes of which we may not see again anytime soon. He's missed by his friends and family, but leaves behind a climbing culture that he touched forever. And so uh, that's my life story. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. All right. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate all of you, and thanks for the good work all around. Thank you. Cameramen all over. We have cameramen and sound people all over the place. Oh. Lighting people all over the place. Gaffers. Yeah. yeah. You guys are okay. <laughs> you guys are good. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the American Alpine Club's Legacy Series podcast. Produced by myself at Bedrock Filmworks in Portland, Oregon along with Shane Johnson and Pete Takeda at the American Alpine Club in Golden, Colorado. Pete also helped with the writing and fact-checking. Special thanks to the Patagonia team that captured Tom's interview and the VIP interview series created by Jim McCarthy and Tom Hornbein. Until next time, check your knots and keep the rubber side down. We'll see you on the next one. Cheers. <laughs>